Aquinas was willing to say, okay, well, there really is genuine possibility in the world. There is genuine free will in humans. And yet God can predict what will happen and bring history to the point where it should so that the symphony will end in the proper way. So that in the eternal, like the, the eternal moment will still happen, unfold in the same way that God, God predicted. All right, we've started. We're talking about metaphysics. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Um, you mentioned the idea earlier, Daniel, that different layers of reality could like could like intrude into ours. And um, you mentioned a few examples that are often invoked in the classical tradition. For instance, in in Platonism, uh, a classic example that like professional mathematicians have often used like up until this day is precisely mathematical objects or mathematical truths. Because you know, let's say at the moment where you have an insight about some theorem you're trying to prove or like some counterexample to something or whatever, um, it's like a little touch of the eternal coming into time and space through you. Uh, let's say you're, and sometimes it can be super practical. Like maybe you're a physicist and you're trying to like figure out how to build this damn thing that uh, you haven't figured out yet. And like you, you, you have an insight and some, sometimes these things are dramatic. Like sometimes it will happen during sleep. Some scientists may or may not have used drugs. Uh, sometimes it's just like raw discipline, like a, almost a form of asceticism where you just keep banging your head against the wall, like trying to contemplate this formula until you finally find a solution. And at the moment of insight, uh, I don't know how much mathematics you've done, but, or it can be similar with, let's say, playing chess or other kinds of abstract games. No, at the moment of insight, like what you get isn't like, uh, it's kind of a, a kind of seed where like in one flash you have an insight for the next things that you're going to scribble over the board for like one minute like you, you see sort of in one moment uh, a whole span of things it's like a, a touch of eternity that will come in time through you and then if let's say you actually build the thing that we're trying to, to build then like this abstract eternal mathematics that's outside of space and time like winds up changing space and time through you so like it's and typically they wouldn't use the level the, the name of dimensions because dimension is often like more f physical but like they would speak of let's say the uh, the realm of ideas or uh the realm of the eternal because you're dealing with let's say mathematics it's not only that they exist at let's say a higher level of space and time but they, they're outside of space and time altogether like even if there was no universe like even without a big bang mathematical theorems would still hold so like you have something that truly comes from outside of space and time coming into space and time does that resonate completely completely uh i like what you're pointing towards when you say that it's it exists outside of space and time and and to use the term dimensions might be uh not the proper way to address it I'm reminded of, I want to mention two things. One is the dichotomy between Nick Land and Alexander Dugan. Why do I pick both of these guys? Dugan is Orthodox Christian, but in, in this very traditionalist, um, sometimes not too palatable way, um, quite, quite you know, unique in his own point of view. And then Nick Land is also sort of unpalatable for many people, but it, from the other perspective, by being an accelerationist. However, both of them do have this. So Nick Land talks about the outside and the fact that it is invading our dimension through technological acceleration, through AI, through the coming age of the Antichrist, so to speak. And Dugan says the same, the, the coming age of the Antichrist through the person of technology. Or, um, and I think that this, set, this, this, this dichotomy that I've just established is interesting because uh, it is also touching upon, they are two different ways to look at a single thing that's happening, this, this single event, which from our perspective in temporal incarnate existence might look a little bit like, uh, yes, being touched upon on this reality by something that comes from the outside, outside with a big O or, or something that is outside of the realm of what we can perceive as humans, right? Our, our cognitive apparatuses only go so far at the edges. You use myth and stories and art to try to probe the depth. If you go too deep, then fuck me, you're in the abyss, right? 
uh, and it's very complex and, and really not meant for us. <clears throat> so we live in kind of this very enclosed garden of reality, which is safe and, and, and we have a body and we use strings of words to communicate. But outside of that, there lies there lie other entities, uh, so to speak. And the interaction between us and those entities is, is something quite interesting as well to discuss. It's something that we are very interested in mm-hmm. discussing the techno-social, especially where um, AI and, and, and even occultism and narrative connect. I'll tell you what's interesting to me here is like perhaps the overlap, but also distinction, say, between outside with a big O and eternal with a big E. Because like, like when I hear you speaking, um, Jean-Philippe, about the, the eternal, like I, I'm kind of a bit skeptical of the like Platonist tradition, perhaps slightly naively. Like I don't know it that well, but this idea like there are the eternal unchanging forms and that maths can be the ultimate representation of these because maths itself evolves. And as my kind of layperson's understanding of maths goes, even maths ran into that crisis where that guy, was it Girdle? Maybe came up with his incompleteness theorem that shows that actually like you can't have a completely self-consistent set of mathematical axioms. Maybe that's the wrong way of saying it, but so maths itself doesn't subscribe to this kind of static, perfect eternalism that we would like to project onto it. Um, Which gets me to then this point about the, the outside. It's kind of interesting to postulate this, this this realm that is kind of akin to the eternal that is beyond our perception but then acts inwards upon our perception and yet is itself subject to the laws or rather non-laws of change um i guess like first up like is my explanation of maths and kind of by extension the platonic forms is that fair there or would you respond to that at all yeah um I wonder if Gödel, in, in fact, showed the opposite. At the time, what people were trying to do was to reduce mathematics, in fact. Um, the, because there had been a few, a, few, a few issues in the history of mathematics where, for instance, people were experimenting with changing up some axioms, some adding some or uh, removing some and seeing what happened. And they were getting much more interesting things than they had expected. Let's say, um, so back in uh, Euclid's time, I think he had like five axioms and for like thousands of years, this is like what everybody thought was just like true base mathematics, but turned out that by removing one of the postulates, you could still get interesting and meaningful mathematics. So rather than describing like what happens in a flat plane, you could describe what happens let's say on a sphere or like on a tori or like other kinds of, of geometric uh, uh, mm-hmm. setups. And there were other issues where, for instance, some, I think Gödel or, no, no, sorry, not Gödel. I think uh, maybe it was Cantor or it was um, maybe Frege who like were playing with like alternative constructions, like trying to create some alternative logics or like stuff like this. And one, one guy spent like decades of his career working on a system until somebody showed that it was inconsistent. Like there was a contradiction at the base of the system. So like the entire edifice was just completely useless. And like this kind of uh, shakeups had happened a few times. So in order to try and like keep a way for mathematics to be real, what they tried to do rather than going for, let's say the Platonist route, what they tried to do was to try and reduce mathematics to something. So uh, David, David Elbert uh, explicited the project really well. Like he said, what we need to do is because mathematics is just manipulating symbols, we we can talk about math- mathematics from within mathematics. Uh, I mean, if let's say you have a certain sim- you, you have a certain symbol for plus, a symbol for minus, and whatever, and you can encode the operations on those using mathematics. So you can talk about mathematics using mathematics. And the the, the objective there was that okay, we're gonna we're gonna use this to show theorems about mathematics using mathematics and the hope and everybody thought this would work was that we're going to show that a certain system of mathematics like like basic arithmetic or whatever is mm. complete and consistent in that it can show all of the truths of mathematics and it doesn't contain any contradictions like people thought that you could clearly show something like this but Gödel ended up showing the opposite um but i, I don't think it has really affected like mathematical Platonism itself, because I mean, 
Platonists, I don't think they would have expected that you could reduce mathematics in the same way that people were trying at the time. Uh, and like, but even with all the shakeups, let's say that happened, uh, the, it, it sort of just expands mathematics more. Like the realm of eternal truths, it's okay. Now we thought that you could only find truths in the place where you have five of Euclid's axioms, but now it turns out that you can still get interesting truths if you only take five. And uh, like people have just kept expanding and expanding and people keep finding more and more truths, but it doesn't mean that they're all useful. Like a bunch of them, but now mathematics is, is more about uh, trying to find useful new realms to explore. Because I mean, if you do EPAG in mathematics, you're gonna like, try something new, but it doesn't mean that it's going to catch up. Like if it's, if it's useless, people are just like going to forget about it. So I think you can still maintain it. Um, and the, the sort of mathematical Platonism that's there. Like, so mathematical objects are one, one expression of like the, the idea that there are abstract eternal truths, but there are others. And like another place is, um, like the fact that we need universals to be able to talk about things, like to say that there are categories that really exist, like that really point to things when we speak. Because if you don't, if, if you're not able to, to, to hold to that, your speech sort of disintegrates. Like there are people who try to defend nominalism, the fact that the, the, the idea that there would be no um, like absolute categories out there outside of like the meaning we impose on the world. But mm. like, it, it's super difficult to defend. People really have a hard time because you need to use categories to speak even about nominalism. So try, to try and defend nominalism, you end up like, you end up presupposing that it's false or uh, it's similar for um, very closely related is the idea that you need to believe in propositions. Like the fact that we can really say that some things are true or false because if you try to defend the, the the alternative that like if you try to defend this sort of skepticism where abstract truths are like out of our reach then you're presupposing that you can use at least like this formulation to defend your thesis so like the the basic idea that there needs to be some abstract truths that don't depend on us uh like it's it's all bunched up together and if you if you grant that there are abstract eternal truths outside even of like the space and time then you get to solve sort of all of those problems at once, and then you can sort of move forward. Uh, mm -hmm. So that that's, I mean, you can try to do otherwise, but like I haven't seen really convincing ways to do it. Um, mm -hmm. you, you can have, let's say, skepticism about the way that we interact with those eternal truths. Like we obviously make all kinds of mistakes, but if you don't grant from the start that they, that they exist, then you sort of almost never go nowhere. Like you're just bound to, always keep about skepticism, even about your own skepticism. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that helps. I said a lot there. Yeah. Let me, let me do, do a parallel and ask you something. So um, mm -hmm. perhaps the task or the project, like you said, which is a very cool term in here of mathematics might be described from one point of view as being a way to describe reality or a way to approach uh, these ineffable platonic abstract concepts and trying to learn from them, trying to draw them back into our reality. Um, some people say that the instruments which we use, like you were describing, that they themselves are mere constructions and that they are flawed and therefore the approach to truth will be flawed, which is an interesting point. And but you said we cannot do away with categories. I mean, we have five fingers. Everyone does. Everything falls from there. I mean, there's 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 no way no way around it. Reality has a structure and an order, even if it's biased by evolution and by you know uh, needing to eat uh, every few hours. But my question to you is more like, um, what is a parallel between the project that you see or that you take up with mathematics? Is that project descriptive? Is it a pursuit, a striving forward? So what's the parallel between that and teleology what's the pro what's the objective and and i know you're a christian i am as well and the way that that relates so to speak with mm, those spiritual practices how do these three things perhaps connect in your view yeah that's a, that's a very good question i'm not sure how it would all fit together one thing that's worth mentioning is uh, for a lot of people like doing mathematics can be very close to spiritual experiences. Like it can even be ultra spiritual experiences for a long time, even in ancient Greece, like the Pythagoreans and all of those sects, like they were like really religious movements because mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, like the experience of doing mathematics 
is a place where you get to experience how the layers of reality can interact with one another. Like we said earlier, how the, the spatial temporal can interact with the eternal and like humans can play a mediating role between that. So it's similar to, let's say, how Adam is placed in Genesis to mediate between the world of space and time and God, uh, where, for, for instance, like the, the first thing that Adam will do is to name the animals. Like he, he, he takes abstract categories and he applies them to concrete individual like bits of matter in fields, let's say. And he says like, this is a cow, this is a pig and whatever. Like he, he, he associates something abstract with something concrete. And this will, this will sort of always be the role of, of man in, in the Bible. And ultimately it will culminate in, in Christ, obviously, who like completely reunites the abstract eternal, the ground of all things to the spatio temporal world. So I see sort of mathematics as one, like one vertical axis between the uh, eternal and the temporal. And because of that, it can be a good, a good practice. It can give lots of sort of lights to people, even like in way before I, I was Christian, like I, I had this experience when I was doing mathematics. I did my undergrad in mathematics precisely because of that. And then I went through sort of a crisis because of Gödel's uh, incompleteness theorems, which I didn't interpret correctly at the time, I would argue, but like I, because I was really attempting to reduce everything down. And if I couldn't reduce like mathematics down, then it meant that it probably was an illusion too, but it took me a while to like get the idea that there could be like a, a really eternal realm that interacts with ours, but like there have always been mathematical platonists uh, among mathematicians. Like to be able to do mathematics, like it's way better if you think that the things you're, uh, you're studying actually exist. So like there's a kind of an element of almost a fake, like you, you, things will go better if you sort of make the, the, like if you if you're willing to interact with mathematical truths as if they're eternal, and then like you you get to solve a bunch of problems that I mentioned earlier, and your mathematics actually go better. Like you you get to show more things, you, you your career goes better, and once you have this pathway, then it opens the pathway to other like ways to connect the eternal and the temporal. Like you you, you lots of people have this experience through art, uh, like different kinds of arts. Lots of people have this experience also in let's say in ethics, like let's say you're, you you have certain, a certain problem you're trying to fix in your family or whatever with your friends and you can have moments of insight where like in one flash, you see all of that you can do to fix those problems, for instance. So like there are different paths between the internal and the temporal and mathematics is, is one of those that I see. Does that help answer like fix the, the three things you mentioned, uh, Daniel? Yes, 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 yes. I want to I wanna bring something up. Mm. When we are... Sometimes people argue that um, mathematics and some other things, and bear in mind, I, I'm very bad. At, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, when I speak about mathematics, it's from a philosophical perspective and trying to craft my point of view there. But many people argue that it is but an instrument that is socially conditioned by humans that by, that by no means it contains perfection and that the path that it establishes towards per perfection is flawed. But I would argue, and this is what's interesting for me, so... There's this thing which is a feedback loop between uh, us and our tools, right? Um, if there was no medicine, I wouldn't be alive. Uh, technology, as it comes, it really gets embedded into who we are. And this feedback loop, this causal relationship that is very simple as an example that I just gave, also extends to things like language and other conceptual tools such as mathematics. So it's not so much that math is a thing that's here and we are here and we use this thing here as subject and object. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. The way we even conceptualize and engage in the process is mathematical. So what is two, right? The nature of the number two, for example, it is not only a feature of the world out there objectively, but also a feature of how we are able to divide up and uh, perform cognitive tasks with reality from the within. In other words, within and without, they're the same thing. They are continuous, they're a feedback loop. And that's the weird thing about <clears throat> observer and observed. That's why the sentence that we are created in God's image is so profound in my opinion, because we are, there's, it's not like the relationship that we have with God is also enveloped in this feedback loop in a way, in my opinion. It's not so much that in the Kabbalah, they say that you cannot really look at the face of God because the, the, but you can align yourself with it side by side. There's a weird statement in there. And I think that that statement or that point of view reflects this nature of, of the ontological embeddedness between mm -hmm. us and our tools, tools, namely such as mathematics, which is kind of the queen of all of these tools because it goes so much to the root 
of cognition. Think about the number two or three, right? Or five. It's insane how it's embedded within us, within the body. It is natural that reality would be broken down into these categories, but the, because they are also part of within. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds to me like what we move towards is this sense of truth as instrument. And that even comes out from what you were saying, Jean-Philippe, around like all these different realms of mathematics that are available to study. And the main thing is discovering the ones that are actually useful. So you can go and do your PhD and discover God knows what. And if it's it's helpful, then it's helpful. And if it's not, then whatever. It might be in some sense a truth, but maybe it's just not the truth we need. And so what kind of seems to be is then if there is this universal realm or the outside realm... Elbowed a lamp over. <laughs> if there is this outside, or that's the outside imposing in upon me, then multifarious and fucking convoluted. Like, and this is why I kind of like struggle with that idea of eternal because eternal kind of implies it's like it's knowable in some sense. There's a kind of maybe I'm wrong in saying this, but there's like a finitude to eternal somehow. It's like eternal is our way of actually putting the eternal itself into a box. Paradoxically, maybe it doesn't make sense, but it makes sense to me. And then yeah, this brings yeah. me to like why I like kind of thinking about the universal, thinking about truth from that kind of like Hegelian position that like, yes, we need universals, we need truths, but every universal statement, every true statement is itself non-whole. And there will always be some kind of contradiction that comes along and then exposes the flaws in that. And then we find a new universal. And so it's kind of like, it's a mistake to deny any kind of like ontic reality to universals, but it's also a mistake to apply a kind of like eternal perspective to any universal. It's like we're always at a point where there is a universal that is helpful to us. And I don't know whether that gets encapsulated within a Christian perspective or not. Yeah, yeah th- th- it's a really good question. There's, um, I think that the best example to see how eternity, like s- sometimes, as you said, like, some people talk about eternity in a way that really just like what you do is you put the eternal like before time and then like time unfolds but that's not how it's best seen the best illustration of how to think about this that i've seen is from saint augustine he used the example of a of a piece of music uh if you if let's say you're listening to a to a piece of music and you like listen to if you try to listen to the individual notes that are going on in the piece you won't actually get the whole thing like you you'll hear individual bits of music but you won't be able to tell the entire melody that's going on to be able to like gather the whole thing you'll need to try to sort of stretch your sense of time you'll need to reach into higher time not the individual like milliseconds of the different notes but like what happens at the larger scale of let's say every five ten seconds and maybe you'll need to listen to a piece several times if especially especially if it's complex you need to listen to it several times until you can get like one moment like in, in sort of one insight you get the entire melody that unfolds in time uh and for augustine this is how the eternal really is like the 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 one eternal moment of creation by God is one moment of like, it is one moment from which unfolds all of space and time. So it, the idea is that all the space and time is sort of contained in eternity. Um, another example is we, 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 we do get this sort of as creators in the same way that an author, let's say, or a composer who is creating this piece of music, you know, he has some sort of back and forth with uh, his, his piece of music and like he will have some, some insights in okay i know at this moment what i'm gonna play during those next five ten whatever seconds like you have one moment where you know what you're gonna do in like the next bit i get this often with writing sometimes like i'm sort of stuck like trying to write something but then i have one insight and i know what to write for like one page like th- this sort of stuff where like in one moment of higher time you know what to do in lower time and mm-hmm. like the idea is there's a hierarchy of those different levels of temporality and ultimately it goes all the way up to the the eternal, which contains all of it. Yeah. 100%. Chris Gabriel called this, <clears throat> offered me this term, I didn't have it. It's, it's, it's the term Aria Katana or the golden thread, that thread of golden insight that connects you and your inspiration, but also all of the inspirations and other threads of other thinkers in the past that stretches all the way down to uh, 
the eternal east. Namely, the beginning we cannot even fathom. But it stretches way before, that's a loaded word, but it stretches all the way before anything was ever present. Namely, that inspiration that unfolds, that epiphany, that revelation, which is such an important concept, especially in many Christian traditions, like that that rely on meditation and, and asceticism, for example. What is that revelation, that, epif- that epiphany? To me, it's the golden thread that f- comes from behind and before us. We know that it's not before and after because that's just a perspective. You know, our perception is bound in time, but it's time is a feature of our perception. It's not really reality, but it is something that comes from both behind us and that also, also exists already in the future. That's why some philosophers like to, to, to explore retro causality and future causality. The idea that the second coming or the singularity and the AI in the future, which to me, they're talking about the same thing, is something that exists in the future. But in a way, it's already happened and it's drawing us towards it. It's like there's really there, there's a path. There's there's a thin, narrow path, if you will. And to me, the stacking of epiphanies is a way to thread that path. I, I totally believe that. And yeah. it's a way to also make the inner the same with the outer as per St. Thomas uh, in the one apocryphal gospel. And maybe that helps with Owen's question also about the dialectic, because like having a dialectic at the lower levels doesn't prevent the like unity in the higher levels. In fact, it often makes it like you, you need sort of dynamism at the lower levels for something meaningful to exist at the higher levels like you wouldn't have a piece of music if like everything was just bland or monotone you need some oppositions same thing in a story like you you need some you need some dynamism in the story you need some oppositions that will unfold in lower time to be able to understand that something exists meaningfully at the higher level as well like the biblical story is full of like twists and turns and like like really like the eye is going to the lowest down into death and then coming back and like but in all kinds of weird ways that people don't understand that like the, the story like especially in genesis if you look at the, the, the story is just so completely messy of like people going this way and then learning that this was completely wrong and going some other way but it's because of you have all of this diversity all of this sort of dialectics that at the higher level you get to extract meanings that actually like make and inform the entire world the only thing about this like i'm I almost agree, I think, but I think there's a way in which that perspective, it privileges a view which is like the dialectic is working towards something that already exists up there. So it's like history in some sense has already been written unless we resolve it in a way that's a bit like, um, like our friend Thomas Hamorick was telling me about Albert North Whitehead the other day. And he said, basically, Whitehead's conception of God is God is all of the potentialities that are available in any moment. And the thing about potentiality is it doesn't have to play out that way. So like there's a hundred, a thousand different ways this conversation could go. So that's the like, that's God in this moment, but it's only going to go one of those possible ways. And all of those other possible ways, where do they go? Do they still remain in God? Were they never part of God? That's the kind of flaw with perhaps a perspective that seems to prescribe that the truth is there already as opposed to something that is unfolding itself unpredictably through the dialectic. I would just very quickly add that those things to me are, are complementary. So the perception of variability of outcome, that some timelines continue and some don't get picked, is something that only happens because, again, we exist in temporality. We exist in circumstance and time space. But to presuppose that there is something outside of time space where the teleology of history is already complete. That's where the future causality comes from and the completeness of history might come from. And, I'll, you know, I'm being extremely crude with, with, with postulating this, but it's not as if uh, some things will happen and some will not in terms of a choice. And we're saying, oh, no, the history, in our terms, in our biased view of history, it's going to go that way. That's very Marxist even. That's like the materialist dialectic. I think that's not the case. I think that the way things are written since the beginning is at another dimension. Is some it's written somewhere that we can't even read. I'll give you another very quick example. There was this one time where where I, I deeply understood the history of Genesis, and uh, that was also the time when I decided to stop um, experimenting with drugs. I did a lot of ketamine one night, 
and uh, a lot. It was stupid. It was very stupid and dangerous. But then I did, then I got into a K-hole, which is this moment where the only sensation that I had in my body was like the tip of my tongue. And I was grabbing onto something for dear life because I didn't feel anything else in my body. Everyone was dancing. The music was playing in slow motion in my head. And I was meditating and I, I, I was like, dude, Eden makes sense in a way. In a sense, and this is very Gnostic and, and, and kind of a dodgy idea, but I sensed that the serpent of Eden is necessary for Christ. In other words, that there's a certain, that when for God to make himself man and to come into the valley of tears and suffer and go through the beauty and the highs and the lows of it and to offer himself for it, also might presuppose that he would have to cast us out, cast himself out into history and go through this tumbling down forth through history. Um, in other words, there's a, there's some sort of connection there between these two entities, and, and they are they are. It might be said that they exist in a feedback loop, right? There's no light without dark. There's a certain unity to reality, a certain monism uh, that I kind of explored very much during that day, and I wonder how that how that floats with you, uh, Jean-Philippe. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think I see things in a consonant way. Um, there's a place in the Summa where Saint Thomas Aquinas explains that. I think he goes like one step further than what Whitehead does. He says he says that God works through both necessary and contingency ways. So like God can create the world sort of both bottom up by uh, both top down, sorry, by imposing constraints and also top down by letting things emerge freely. And we. I think this is what happens. If you read the Bible, I think this is what you see. You have, okay, so humans will will try things, will mess it up in all kinds of ways, but this just forces God to come down and impose like something else, like propose something else to, to turn history back into the right ways. And I think it's very similar to the ways that, let's say a parent can interact with a child in a way where the child is free. He will, he, he can make several decisions. But nonetheless, the parent knows the different possibilities that the child will take and then can accommodate for them so that the child will still reach like the same the same point where you, you try to cheat to teach your, your child I don't know, to to ride a bike and you know because you've seen other children and you've had others, for instance, that like the child will make like either it'll get it or it'll make like those four kinds of mistakes. And then you can like correct for whatever mistake will will come up. So like the child was free to do like any of what he would. Uh, and yet you as a parent, you knew where you would bring the entire story towards the end. And it didn't really like matter too much like what the child would do. Uh, but the child still really participated into the story. And there are even cases where like it's possible to perfectly predict what somebody will freely choose. Like if, uh, let's say, I know that you really like this musician, for instance, and I offer you the possibility to like go watch a concert with uh, of him and like speak to him afterwards. Like I know, one hundred percent of the the time that you'll freely choose to do this. Like it's even possible for us to like have moments where we know, like what will happen freely from possibility. So I think it's because of this kind of 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 puzzles, because of this kind of examples that Aquinas was willing to say, okay, well there really is genuine possibility in the world. There is genuine free will in humans, and yet God can predict what will happen and bring history to the point where it should, so that the symphony will end in the proper way, so that in the eternal, like the, the eternal moment will still happen, unfold in the same way that God, God predicted. And maybe one last analogy related to that is, I think it's Lewis who talked about it this way, but probably some other like Christian authors as well, is when, let's say, we humans, we write a novel, we we sort of have to, to try out, like, well, let's see, we, we have an idea and we sort of put it into the characters of the novel and then we see what they will freely do. Like the, our idea, we cannot just sort of impose something strictly top down. We have to see what will fit in the characters, like what will, like what will mesh really with them. And then once we've tried it, then we can go back to the iron level and see like, can we change something to bring the plot to where we want? So we have this sort of feedback where the human author sort of cooperates with the freedom of his characters. And, but we humans have to do it like in time, like it takes lots of loops for us to be able to, to do this because we live in time. But the idea is that for, for God, like this would happen all in one instant where like in one moment, he knows entirely how the plot will like will unfold. And yet like the characters are free in the same way that the characters of a novel are free. 
And that's the. But then this sounds like in the Christian psychology, it's like you have this idea of the the perfect parent who knows what's going to happen, who is bringing things towards their perfect end. That to me seems like a bit of a letting go of our existential responsibility because someone else is ultimately calling the shots and someone else is ultimately bringing it towards its its end. And then it's an orientation towards the end itself. Whereas I say no open-endedness. And I say, I think it is is not the perfect parent. We do not understand what open or closed-endedness mean. What, from I, I would argue, from a phenomenological standpoint, if you presuppose this, this. Okay, let me let me. I, I get. I think I understand where you're coming from. So let me. To to enter history, to fall into time, is the ultimate symphony, the ultimate act of love and self-sacrifice. In other words, to fall into open-endedness, into randomness and chaos and see where it might lead is an eternal moment. It, it, it's, we only assume that there's future timelines because we live in time. We only assume that we get to choose between them because we are like children speaking to gods, right? There, there was this anime on Netflix that I saw and they give a tremendous explanation about what the fates are. In ancient Greece, there was the fates and there were these entities who could predict the future. And you put a child on a table and you told the child to walk. And he, he told the main character, well, you know, the child will fall from the table if you don't stop them. You know it. That's like, that is an, an analog to how we see humans. We know what's going to happen. You don't. Uh, and that's the relationship. So if we are on this side of the spectrum and the fates are here, then the absolute God would, would exist at this end of the spectrum, meaning it knows everything. Uh, but even this way of formulating it is 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 sparse because we're talking about the ineffable, right? So all these tools and words that we use indeed lend themselves, Owen, like you said, to to these erroneous ways of saying, no, no, teleology is this way. That's because I heard it. He told me, and you need to like wear this kind of clothes. Really? No. So I I do agree with you there. On the other hand, uh, you know, in my deepest meditations uh, and in my deepest moments, I've I thought about like emptiness in the abyss and the cosmos and how how mad it is. Uh, and out of that depth and, uh, and madness, I've seen emerge this vision of love and self-sacrifice to throw oneself into history, to throw oneself into time. Wow. Like really, if you meditate about time and being, and that's where Heidegger comes in. That's why for me, Heidegger and the Kabbalah and, the, you know, there's, there's, something very interesting there, especially when it relates to the feedback loop. The question being, you know, where does being come from? Where does time come from? What exists behind and facilitating time? And those are perhaps deep, deep, deep questions to which we cannot formulate a static square prescribed answer naturally. We, in the same way that if you tell me that to love God, you have to do X and Y. I'm like, hey, bro, it's dodgy. But, at, but I do understand where it comes from it is only that you know when you have these higher demand it's trickle down metaphysics when you have it's like you have five or ten levels in the kabbalah and then at the top it's just one thing and at the bottom it's infinite things and as the one thing seeps through the levels there's one thing seeps down to level underneath there's ten things maybe the archangels you seeps down a little bit before it has multiple angels or how they call them these days the ufos and they seep down into these you know these these helpers, these angels, these fairies, these these celebrities, these images, these spectacularized, commodified images as per Guy Debord's side of the spectacle. And then they seep down into our reality. But there's it's there's lossy compression as it seeps down, right? The information gets lost. God takes this pain of the loss of compression by becoming man, by saying, shit, I'll have to eat and shit and have five fingers in each hand to become and to sacrifice. And that to me is the fall. And it's also a beautiful story, as in, wow. I'm with you. And the moment where the Christian theologians went wrong was when they resurrected him and put him back in the eternal. Let God become man and then let him suffer as man and experience the finitation, finitation, limitation and finitude. Oh, and to answer that, you know, if to make cults, there's inner circles and there's outer circles. And you know that pragmatics from the Machiavellian perspective forces people to do all sorts of constructions for the sake of power. And this is, you know, 
it doesn't surprise me that some, you know, you know the Borgia Pope was having orgies. It doesn't surprise me. And, and it, it was written in a way. In other words, how could it be in any other way? No. And that's also part of the, wow, what a magnificent symphony. I know this, this, this is a good thing to say when we look at the highs of the beauty of the world. What a magnificent symphony. But also it's very dodgy to speak when you're looking at the lows. Wow, look at the pain that we've all been through throughout history and all these destructive things. But the whole composition of the universe, if you could even actually use the word whole and universe, which is very complicated. Um, it's, 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 what a song, you know? Um, it's beyond yeah. us, yet within us. Yeah, and I, I would be willing to go really far with the resurrection to like so the basic idea i think about let's see the, the worry that we have about let's see putting god as a beneficent father that takes care of things it's that it doesn't look obvious from the world outside that there is such a thing because the world doesn't seem to be going all that well necessarily um, and you know all traditions all big traditions have some basic argument for you know, the teleology Within, from within the world. Uh, it's only really recently that people started to find this less convincing, but I think if anything, they've become more convincing. I see just as an abstract argument, if you look at, uh, let's say just the, the intricate ways that the laws of physics are set up so that something exists, like there, there are traces where like, there seems to be teleology for things to exist somehow, but obviously things went wrong at some point because like we see all kinds of death and tragedy around us. And like, there's all kinds of countries where there's all kinds of, 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 of huge mess. We're kind of like, we're really lucky in the West right now, but who knows for how long it will be. And like the 20th century was pretty bad even in the West. So like with, with all this, like how can we affirm a beneficent father? But then, you know, Daniel really brought it out well, I think it's the idea that, okay, well, if, if this is wrong, but you also have God himself coming down into time to redeem it all. Um, I think it's, it's really coherent that if there's sort of a teleology at the bottom of things for like the, the eternal to come and make the temporal, uh, that if like the temporal goes wrong, then like it, 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 has, it still has to stick back together. You know, if the, the temporal and the, the eternal are starting to, to split apart, but at the very being of things is the fact that the, the the temporal has to come out of the eternal and then return back to the eternal because it's just it's teleology then you if there if things are starting to split to scatter then you need the eternal to come back to the temporal to save it back and like so on the one end you do have sort of the condescension that's the you know the incarnation and Christ dying but you also need really something to bring it all back together and that's what the resurrection is for like there's literally the ascension like we said where Christ literally like came back into heaven and it's afterwards that the the church was founded like the the apostles were really a huge mess before pentecost where like they received the the spirit and then like peter started to speak boldly and convert and all kinds of people that's where the kingdom started to spread and I believe like it's 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 important to stress the ontological claim there like the the fact that the fabric of, of space and time had broken down away from the eternal, like we really do want to say that this was not only repaired, but even improved by the incarnation and the resurrection. We do we want to say that you know, after after the, the incarnation, like crazy things have been happening, like all kinds of miracles where you can even see it in the structure of the miracles that Christ did. He did some 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 miracles that show how the eternal and the temporal meet ordinarily. Uh, just he did it in a condensed way, for instance, by multiplying loaves and fishes. I think we talked about this, Owen, not too long mm -hmm. ago. But you know, in those are cases where God takes eternal patterns that typically take, let's say, a year to unfold, like the multiplication of loaves and fishes. Like fishes do multiply and loaves also as well. Like it's just that we it, it happens through, let's say, fishing and through agriculture. Mm -hmm. But this typically takes months. But if the eternal himself comes down, into the temporal, then you can do it much quicker. Like in one afternoon, you can multiply loaves and fishes. Uh, but Christ also instituted some new patterns, some new ways for the internal and the temporal to meet. For instance, walking on water. That's a much more dramatic kind of meeting of heaven and earth than typically happens right now in, in, in creation. Because at, in walking on water, like your, your, your mind, the, the capacity for something abstract to interact with 
something concrete, something full of potential like water is increased. Like right now I just control the water in my body, for instance, and it's fairly limited and I can die and all kinds of things. But there's this idea that after the eternal and the temporal have been stitched back together, like we, the, the union will be much closer than it used to be. Like that then before the fall, before the serpent, to bring it back to Daniel, to what Daniel was saying, at this moment, like we'll be able to walk on water. And the, the claim it really is that like to stitch creation back, you need the eternal to come back in the temporal, but you also need the temporal to emerge back into the eternal. And like this means, among other things, like Christ coming back, resurrecting. This means like us walking out water and all kinds of other things. Interesting. This relates, Owen, as you know, or rather I would claim that it has a relationship with eventology, namely that there was, regardless of where you put the date of the beginning of the events, that's uh, 2,000 years ago with Christ, 4,000 with Zoroaster, 10,000 with agriculture. You could say that there's a pre-this and there's a post-this, post-event and pre-event, which is, uh, or I would argue, following the dichotomy of nomadology versus eventology. That nomadology might be the eternal, uh, a sort of static in repose relationship with the eternal. Whereas, you know, humans are nomads. They every year just looks like the every other year. They're in an eternal camping trip, camping trip with a hundred of your closest family, family members and nothing really changes. And boom, something happens. Something invades from outside. This is why Nick Lang got got, got mad because he saw it. And perhaps his moral, his uh, the, the perhaps the spiritual angle from which we approached it, <clears throat> made him see it as this techno-capitalist beast invading. And I don't blame him. There's other other angles based on where's your initial vantage point to look at this phenomena and see other things at play, regardless of the tastes that we put on the angle that we have, a taste that is naturally temporal, the palette of colors, the words you use, whatever. The phenomena can be said to be the same, namely that the event was the birth of a time that had a teleology. In other words, it's no longer the same. It's no longer sort of more the same. It is as if the eternal touched upon the temporal and inspired it, gifted it with gravity. It's Promethean, really, to make it progress, to make it be directed somewhere. In other words, we are humans today in a techno-capitalist society, drivers of this ethos or or drivers of the event as well, right? When we have epiphanies and revelations and when we use our technique and art and skill and engineering to produce and to go forward, what are we doing if not accelerating the cause of the eternal, so to speak, which is a weird way to, to, to wrap things up. But this is where Dugan, Christ, land, Bard mingle and in, in, in this in the in Prometheus really. So what I, I think it's- what I kind of come to thinking about what you were saying a second ago, Jean Philippe, about like when there's a time of say dissolution and chaos, and then the divine comes down to the eternal comes to the the temporal to stitch things back together. I say yes, but maybe that's a function of the people in the chaos needing to create for themselves some kind of truth or universal as instruments so as to stitch themselves together. So in a time of dissolution, a time of the flood or the Tower of Babel or the postmodern internet explosion, there is some kind of trans transpersonal value that needs to emerge to sit over people's heads. And it's had various names. It's been Christianity. It's been nation. We're at a point today where we feel like we need some kind of new transpersonal value, or maybe it can come back from the previous transpersonal values like we've had. And I've got a lot of space for that thinking as well. But what it comes to for me is it's, it is truth universal as instrument. It's deciding to view the outside in a particular way so as to stitch together the temporal in a way that works. But what I would say is that it's actually the like, the non-humanity of the outside that is prior to the the eternal as like benevolent and loving. And in order to stitch ourselves together, we somehow have to deny or teach ourselves to forget the the 
the brutal otherness of the outside. But I feel like kind of what occurs to me is even, this is kind of what's interesting in the Old Testament is Old Testament, God has a character of the outside. Like he has the arbitrary impositions of, of a kind of like cruel divine justice that aren't so present there in my understanding in the benevolent New Testament God. Yeah, I think this is often put out this way. I think even like Jordan Pearson has popularized this view, but like if you look at, the New Testament, like, it was really confusing to, to people. Like, it was really coming from the outside. You, you, you really have this dynamic of being, being, like, totally accepting of people that repent and, like, totally confusing and other to people who, like, thought they knew what was going on. And even, like, the apostles who spent, like, three years with him, they were, like, they were confused almost all the time. And you have this opposition very often, like, where, for instance, at some point, Peter is the first to recognize that Christ is the Messiah. So, like, Christ says to him that he's going to be the head of the church. But then, right after, after Peter thinks that he understands, he says that he's going to prevent Christ from going to Calvary, to getting, from getting crucified, basically. And then immediately, like, Christ just tells him, get behind me, Satan. And you always have this mix of, of mercy and pushing away, this mix of the, the eternal trying to bring the temporal back together, and also pushing away of the bad parts of the temporal. Uh, and I think this is exactly what was happening in the Old Testament as well, just like in higher scales, where like at some points Israel repents and God brings them back up. And at some point Israel like falls into idolatry or something, and then he shows harshness. So you always have this dynamic for like the eternal cannot just sort of bring everything together. You also have to push back the parts of the temporal that need to die. And then so to bring back to your earlier point about like, this um, like feeling that this could just be a psychological projection for us to do something useful. And I don't even deny that, uh, like I, th this has probably happened at times, no doubt in history uh, where, but I, I would argue that for, for like this projection to actually stick for a long period of time, it has to be more true. Let's say, even if let's say you're, you're a tribe somewhere and like you have no contact with the West at all, but you're going into a, a, a time of uh, dissolution. Well, if you want to like create a new myth that will allow yourself to put yourself back together, you will have to create something that is genuinely higher. You, you have to find the real pattern that will really pull you up. Like you, you, you maybe won't be able to find something eternal. In fact, I, like lots of tribes would just wind up with like animistic kinds of gods where you would worship I don't know, a mountain or something else. But like just by even like even this would have a real ontological reality. Or I would argue like if people all gather, let's say around a certain mountain and they, they, they ascend and like maybe they bring it with like ascetic practices and they make sacrifices and, like, and they have all kinds of rituals. Like this will have real causal power as well. And this will really pull them back together. And maybe this will really allow them to go through the flood, for instance. So like, I, I do think that then it becomes like a matter of a, like how I do you think that this ontology can go? Like if, if let's say you add uh like, okay, so so I, I do think that, first of all, these people, like, they found something real. Like, it, it's not as high as, let's say, what Christians would claim, but they did find something real. I don't think it's just a projection because it has real causal power. Uh, but I, what what I would argue is that, like, if you, you add a story where, like, this was not only, like, reaching up to something in space and time, but if you add really the eternal coming down, to really bring the temporal back up to the eternal, then it would just be wildly more successful, let's say, than what you see in that tribe. You would have, and you could even try it. Like if if you you go into, like if you immerse yourself into a Christian path and like if things stick to you and you notice that, okay, some parts of you are getting pushed away as we talked earlier, but some other parts of you are getting brought higher and you see it over the months that overall you feel like you're really getting overall pulled, pulled up, then you, you can be more confident that you're, let's say, gathering around something that isn't just a psychological projection, but that, that has real, like, ontological weight and that can reach maybe up to the eternal. Like, you can't be absolutely sure of those things. There's a matter of, of faith, of immersing yourself into a path and actually, like, trying it out because we're limited creatures. But, like, it's, you, you can really, like, what are we going to do besides going with our best bet, really? I think that I, I really agree with you. There is this aspect where, the term ontological design comes to mind, namely that at every single moment we need to make decisions 
Uh, for example, you mentioned the tribe that discovers a myth or creates a myth, and they create the myth so that the myth can create them back and therefore uh, steer them through history or shepherd them. Who shepherds? Or shepherd them throughout history in a direction that they have decided. Some things they, they punish, some things they reward. We do that to dogs and our myths do that to ourselves because we are continuous then. Dogs are continuous with us, right? They they from the point of view that human bodies don't stop at our skin and they continue with our clothes and with our tools and even with our friends and, and our dogs and all that, they are continuous to us. They help us, they they used to help us more, now they're more company. Point being that we do have this cybernetic or gubernatorial role in reality. Namely, we we steer, we decide is like the holy anger of Christ to counterpose to the it's his eternal benevolence, right? He 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 did. You know, this this sentence has obviously been used to justify many things, but I do not come to bring peace but the sword or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Does the sword do? It splits, it decides, it designs, it is the phallus, the tip of the pencil that enters reality and is able to discern something, makes a call. This is good, this is not good. And it is not as if the outcome of that decision is going to be eternal forever because this world is temporal. This world is death. It is constantly evolving. What was good before might not be good tomorrow, right? Uh, I used to be a child. Some things were good when I was a child. Now those things are not so good. But rather, the attitude of designing, of entering into this rapport with reality where you do acquire this ability and this mentality to design ontology itself, I think is really powerful. And it applies itself not only to the way we design our tools and we design our interfaces and our technology, but it also to how we design our attitudes. And, uh, you know, to think about benevolence and and, and in this sense that, oh, if God exists, why are there poor people? Uh, That's an infantile way to consider the term benevolence, I would argue. I would would say that that benevolence in the eternal sense encompasses the horror of the abyss, the horror of incarnation, the pain and the, it's Job, right? Wasn't he tested? Like he made, God made him sick and all that just yeah. to test him. Well, that's weird, right? But that's the weirdness of this, of God when you stare him in the face. Nietzsche, which is surprisingly a, a guy who's got a lot of good things to say about God, said, uh, for the followers of the light stand in the shade. In other words, don't look to the sun directly. It's not, it's not meant for you. In other words, you will be awestruck by the horror. There's madness. There's abyss. Like, it's not. Uh, we should. We we would do well to be to tread carefully when it comes to that distinction. And that's why, for pragmatic reasons, uh, the myth as instrument of God has to be made in such and such a way, because uh, you know the occultists and a lot of hermeticists they say milk for young babes and meat for for grown men, namely that there is a requirement in terms of moral composure, in terms of our ability to digest these things that needs to be fulfilled before one uh, enters that. There's a, there's preconditions to be fulfilled. Mm. So what occurs to me based on what you're saying about ontological design and perhaps myth as an instrument, and this idea that maybe the power of the Christian religion, the Christian understanding is that it's, there's something meta-religious about it. In a sense, it kind of reveals very explicitly the way that the universal acts upon the temporal in order to craft it towards a particular dimension. That's kind of what we've been talking about a lot here. But maybe that's not actually the best instrument to adopt. So it's like the, the example that comes to my head is like the best leadership manual perhaps wasn't written by the best leader. Is written by someone who understands the process of leading very well. But there are other values that can be instilled other than, say, the ones that come from Christian thinking. Perhaps we can only have this conversation because we've had 2,000 years of Christianity, which has taught us to think about religion as instrument, as opposed to just unconsciously accept it as instrument, as, say, our tribal forebears may have done. But at the same time, we can do perhaps the ultimate thing to do with the Christian teaching is actually to open this angle upon all religions and ask what is the value that it is selecting for? What type of community does it produce? What is the eternal truth of this people 
And then which is the best eternal truth for my people? So there's, I'm bringing a massive relativism into it, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a... Oh, go ahead, Daniel. Just make a quick parenthesis before I pass it on to you. <clears throat> That's such a Christian thing to say, Owen. Heidegger said, questioning is the piety of thought. Christianity is the most successful religion of the event because it says, be more pious, progress. So that's a really Christian thing to say. Yeah. As well, Go on. You know, at its best, Christianity has always been able to go into other lands and integrate the best parts of that culture and then bring it up into its own narrative. Uh, and, you know, it's hard to say, okay, I think like trying to deal with things when you get to this scale is really difficult because like, it's like you need to become a saint in all traditions to be able to really judge them. Because like, even after years of you know, time in a Christian path, like you still don't really understand like the whole of Christianity. Like unless you're, you're, you've already become a saint, like it's already hard enough for you to judge your own tradition. So if you try to ju- like also look at the other traditions and like see like what's the truth of them and how you can try to incorporate one into another, like it's such a vertiginous task to, try to give to yourself and like the the perennialists were trying to do that like uh, there, there was a whole wave of perennialism 100 years ago maybe it's coming back i don't know but yet people like rene Guénon and others were looking at different traditions and trying to amalgamate what they could into something coherent but like it was super difficult for them and lots of them wound up becoming like lots of them wound up with lives that you wouldn't want to have like it's it was it's it's a way to like disconnect your head from your body when you spend so much time like doing abstract stuff and like getting pulled into different traditions, like it's really like gives you kind of a vertical where, for instance, Guénon spent uh, like his last year uh, like being very paranoid about, like he thought that he was going undergoing magical attacks from anti-traditionalist people in North America who were opposed to all of the truths of the different stories that he was trying to bring up and so on. And I don't know, maybe he was really victim of some magical attacks, but like it didn't look like a great life to have and even made lots of people crazy. Like there's lots of anecdotal evidence of like people diving into this kind of works and just like losing their minds really, because like there's, if you're, if you're not a saint in like all of those traditions, like trying to study them at this level will like pull you apart. Like it's such a dangerous thing to do, but I do think that over like it, it, it is what we have to do ultimately, like to even within a Christian perspective, the goal is to like spread the gospel to the entire world. And that doesn't mean like killing everybody else and then replacing them with Christians. It means like taking their stories and bringing it up into the Christian story. And that's what has happened at its best. That's what Christianity has done. Like it went to, let's say, uh, South America and incorporated their practices into like a brand of Christianity that is continuous with the Christianity that you find in Europe. And like it did the same in, in, in Asia. And uh, like after persecution, it mostly went away, but like, the, the, the basic goal is still that overall, like as the stories intermesh, the, the saints can like try to bring stories into one another. And you know, the Christian bet is that ultimately is the Christian story that will emerge as having incorporated all of the other ones. But like, I can't make a fully comprehensive argument that this is what will happen because it would require me to be a saint in all traditions. And I'm obviously not there yet. So so I, I'm, I'm kind of willing to grant your point, Owen. I just like think that it's sort of a, it's 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 very open, and I think to make ways towards that, we have to become a saint. That we have to become saints in in those traditions. I would mm. say very quickly a small point that I want to make that is perhaps not so ambitious as as the one that you made, Jean-Philippe, but I think is more processual, is and more 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 procedural, is that. The dead wood will eventually burn and the living wood will eventually stay if we only stick to the proper questioning attitude. Namely, that is the ultimate test of reality and with a big R. And in many ways, what if, if Carl Jung said that once God leaves the temple, he never returns. And that we need to put new, even Christ said, we need to put new wine in new bottles, not old bottles, because otherwise you ruin the wine. And um, as we move forward in history, uh, some things we see are wrong, some things we see are valuable, some things need to be reinvented, some things need to be invented anew. And I, I, I enjoy much more, I, I, if I want to, I put my faith, my faith in the process, in the movement 
rather than on the shelves, which may at some point become empty, um, which is something that history has, has shown, right? So many gods or saints were worshipped by these and those, and now nobody remembers them. But the phylum, the golden thread, is a process, is procedural, and that's where I would put my faith. Because once once the trial by fire hits, we know that the dead dead wood burns, and you want to put your faith on dead wood that burns, because that's that's a wrong attitude. Like literally with a big W, wrong. Like there's a right way and there's a wrong way. But at the procedural level, it's not that to say, oh, this type of wood specifically is wrong. It's the wrong. No, bro. That's that's power games. That's temporal shenanigans. Even though at every moment yeah. you need to make value judgments. Go. I just think that we've reached a good point, I think, to bring this conversation to a close. Um it's a good time for me because uh, I'll need to go to work soon. Okay. <laughs> this is work, man. Your job isn't work. This is real. <laughs> uh, I, th I think I need a real job for a few years still to discipline mm -hmm. myself. <laughs> I have some real world experience. Yeah. Temporal. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Otherwise, I can float off too easily. Yeah. <laughs> Temporality is good, man. <laughs> Love Come to the outside. No, I don't know. I fucking suck at the temporal. <laughs> you say that as the sun warmly the sun warmly shines on your face. The outside. Well, this has been fucking awesome. That went so quickly. I had no yep. idea now already. Yeah, yep. this was really fun, guys. We should do Thanks it again. Time. Uh, listen, before you go, um, where can yep. people find you? Oh yeah, well you can find my YouTube channel. It's by my own name, so JP Marceau. And uh, also look at the Symbolic World uh, website. We have a blog there uh, where I'm the chief editor. And uh, yeah, so I, I publish articles in there and also edit others' work. So check that out. Hell yeah. Okay, All right. Thanks, guys. Take care. Have a good up, day. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed the show. Consider becoming our patron and helping us put out more content like this. Patreon.com forward slash techno social.